New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Creation spirituality inspires us to put our highest values into practice. It's about recovering the sense of the sacred, our sacred earth and its marvelous creatures, our sacred bodies and minds, our capacity for sacred creating and ritual making. Our times also call for courage to ask bold questions and pursue original and creative answers. Our guest today, Father Matthew Fox, is at the forefront of this cultural shift from religiosity to deep spirituality. Matthew Fox is an internationally acclaimed spiritual theologian, an Episcopal priest, and an activist who for 34 years was a member of the Dominican Order of the Catholic Church. We'll explore how, by working too closely with Native Americans and supporting women's rights, gay rights, and indigenous rights, led to his expulsion from the order. His many accomplishments include the collaboration with a group of Anglican youth of the Rave Generation in creating a worldwide phenomena of techno-cosmic mass that mixes dance, techno and live music, DJ, VJ, rap, and contemporary art forms with the Western liturgical tradition. He's the author of over 30 books, which include Original Blessing, Hildegard of Bingen, A Saint for Our Times, Letters to Pope Francis, The Coming of the Cosmic Christ, The Healing of Mother Earth, and the Birth of Global Renaissance, and his autobiography, Confessions, the making of a post-denominational priest. Join us for the next hour as we explore the life and work of Father Matthew Fox and how he is inspiring us in bringing spirituality and prophetic warriorhood back to society and religion. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Matthew, welcome. Thank you, Justine. Very good to be with you. It's good to be with you once more. Well, this is quite quite a piece of work. I know you wrote um, a book, an autobiography, many years ago, almost 20 years ago, but this is an updated version, and it's quite fascinating, your, your whole road that you've traveled. So let's go back to when did you know about this vocation of being a priest? 
Well, when I look back on it, I remember when I was 12 years old and I got polio and I lost my legs and they couldn't tell me if I'd ever walk again. And um, when I did get my legs back in about a year or so, um, I remember saying to the universe, I'll never take my legs for granted again. And I think that that is a very mystical statement when I look back on it because after all, in meditation practice, you're told not to take even one breath for granted. So uh, uh, spirituality is about being present to the whole and to the now. It's Jesus saying the kingdom of God is, is here already, you see. So I think when I look back that that was decisive for me. For one thing, my father had been a football coach in Wisconsin. My older brothers had been all-state football, and I just thought, well, that's what it meant to be a man. You just do that stuff. But here I didn't have my legs for a year. And so I, um, I was more open to other versions of growing up, if you will. And when I was in the hospital, there was a Dominican brother who came to visit me regularly. And he was very contemplative. In fact, he ended up being a Trappist monk. And just seeing that version of manhood was an, an eye-opener for me that you know, there's a lesson that there are, there are many ways to, to be a man. So I think I, I, I was drawn to that and then went to a public high school. And my friends were Jewish or agnostic or Protestant, so we had a lot of philosophical debates. So the intellectual side of... Um, of religion meant a lot to me. And I would go to my parish priest who was a Dominican and he'd feed me uh, G.K. Chesterton or Thomas Aquinas to read. And I love that. I love the intellectual dimension of, uh, of religion. So when I was a senior in high school, I uh, took a retreat with Dominicans in Dubuque, Iowa. And um, I was taken by the, um, the community life. I was from a big family and I, I liked diverse personalities around me. Uh, I was taken by the aesthetic of the chanting of the of the Psalms. And um, I was taken by the study, again, that there was an intellectual side uh, to all of this. So on graduating from high school, I figured I would give the Dominicans a shot. And um, I enjoyed very much my 34 years with the Dominicans. One of the things that you mention in the book is uh, that I thought— really caught my eye or caught my ear. You did a newspaper route, and then you did this little newspaper stand right outside, the, I think, the parish church. And you got to kind of listen in on some of the things that, what, that maybe didn't sound the same as they came from, let's say, the pulpit, so to speak. It was an, you, it's sort of the gossip of the parish well, it was that, but I also, especially because it was Madison, Wisconsin, in the cold winter Sundays, I would go to inside the church to stay warm. And so I heard a lot of sermons. And um, because at that time, you had masses every hour on the hour. And um, I learned pretty early what a bad sermon is like. <laughs> <laughs> so there, I, there was a good lesson in how not to, how not to preach. Um, you know, there are a few good sermons, too, but um, the number of, uh, of bad ones, I think, uh, what should I say, they taught me something, too. <laughs> and with this early indoctrination, let's say, you knew early on that what attracted you was ideas. 
you were always attracted to ideas. and. Well, that's true. You know, Madison, Wisconsin is a capital city. And, of course, it's the home of the University of Wisconsin. So um, ideas were very much in the air. And the high school that I went to was on the side of Madison, where a lot of where the university is. So a lot of professor types, kids were in the school and all this. So it was a, it was a very good high school, and um, I had some real critically minded teachers who I really appreciated. And um, what can I say? They challenged me and they encouraged me. Yes. And so, um, and also the fact that. Uh, Catholicism then was a minority, um, made me kind of, what should I say, pursue again the ideas and the and the to be critical of thinking, including my own. So all that was uh, was part of my upbringing for sure, and my family too. My uh, my mother was quite um, aggressive in her very liberal ideas, and. Um, she wasn't raised Catholic, so she though she became Catholic on her own without even telling my father, and that's a whole story to itself. <laughs> um, she was very independently minded. And uh, so she encouraged us to think for ourselves. And, Matt, and, and you learned, I think, later on that she, she gave herself permission and told her husband, your father, that if she didn't like the sermon, she was going to walk out. And, and she did. <laughs> she would do that. That's right. Uh, in her old age, I, yeah. I didn't know about this, but it was when I was being silenced by the Vatican for a year, and I, I knew it was going to be in the paper and all this. And I called my sister, who lived near my mother in Boulder, and it was after my father had died. And I said to my sister, "You know, this is happening, and I want to uh, um, alert my mom." And well, to make a long story short, I went and visited my mom, and I opened the discussion saying, how does it feel to be the mother of a somewhat controversial priest? And she said, oh, I walk out of sermons all the time. And I didn't know this. She said, I worked a deal with you, Father. We don't fight. Uh, if the priest says stupid things, I leave. And I wait until your, the Mass is over and your father and I drive home without fighting. I said, when was the last time you did this? She said, well, three months before your father died. But I said... Oh, but that was when you had a hip problem and you had that walker. Oh, yeah, she said, and I banged that thing as hard and noisy as I could on the way out. That stupid priest was saying the most ridiculous things. So I realized she was not going to have a problem with uh, my silencing by the Pope. Oh, that's great. So you, you, it's, it's in your inheritance. Uh, and then let's just skip forward. We're, we're now, you have joined the order and you're now— you wrote a letter to Thomas Merton at some point asking him for advice, and you ended up in, in Paris. So I, what I'm mostly interested in is the mentor you met in mm. Paris, uh, M.D. Chenoux. Yes, right, a French-Dominican, a marvelous man. He was 75 when I met him. In fact, it turned out to be his last year of teaching at the Institut Catholique. And it's true, I'm very indebted to Merton for— um, advising me to go there, uh, and uh, I'll always say, he's the one who got me in all the trouble I got into. It's Al Merton's fault. But, <laughs> but it was true. And then he passed away, and you couldn't even discuss it that, with him. That's true. That's yeah. very true. He passed away in 68, the very year that I was studying with Chanu, in fact. And um, 
Genoux was an amazing man. He had been a worker priest after the Second World War in France, uh, and um, that meant he was working a lot with the Marxists and the unions. And uh, he's actually the grandfather of liberation theology because he developed the methodology of uh, theologizing from practice and not just from sitting in an armchair, as he often said. I do not do theology from an armchair, he said. And he didn't. And he was marvelous. He, and he did it. He used art books. and He would bring in art books about the, um, the cathedrals of the 12th century to talk about 12th century spirituality and so forth. And, um, you know, he made it clear you can't do spirituality without art. And um, yet he had this very prophetic side, too, his criticism. He was silenced by Pope Pius XII for 12 years, forbidden to write. And um, the Second Vatican Council uh, rehabilitated him. He was one of the key figures there. And um, uh, he essentially wrote the Church in the Modern World document, which is probably the most radical of the documents. And, uh, but he was a wonderful human being, and he was my mentor for sure. And he named the creation spiritual tradition for me. And it, it uh, what can I say, it was the beginning of, of my intellectual life, really. I've been committed to that, uh, developing that, that uh, lineage for, well, ever since, 45 years. Right, right. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Father Matthew Fox, and he's uh, the author of many books, and his latest book is his autobiography, Confessions, The Making of a Post-Denominational Priest. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, matthewfox.org, O-R-G, matthewfox.org. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Father Matthew Fox, and he's the author of many books, including Confessions, The Making of a Post-Denominational Priest. Matthew, there's something that I'd like to that popped for me, and this had to do, I think it was your doctoral thesis. And you you took, you wrote about it. You took Time magazine. Now, you're in Paris when you're writing this. You took time, a year's worth of Time magazine, and you used that for your thesis. Now, I'm wondering, what was that, and is it still relevant today? Hmm. Well, it was an effort to develop a critical methodology 
to think um, critically about culture. And um, I ran across this French professor who had developed such a methodology based on 19th century French newspapers. Because I was aware quite early that spirituality is all wrapped up in culture, language and politics and art and religion and all the rest. So how do you kind of sort it out um, without being, you know, turning into some abstract, airy-fairy thing um, culture is is the mother of, uh, of of what humans do, and so I was asking: Is there a way to to criticize this context, this matrix in which all religion is found? And I felt this older um, historian at at the Institute Catholic ha- had developed such a methodology. So I was excited. Then I spent quite a while saying, "Well, what?" magazine or newspaper would I critique? And I weighed this and that. But I felt, well, time represented middle-class America. And also, we got time when I was a kid. And Time Magazine. Time Magazine, Mm -hmm. yeah. And so uh, that's what I did. I did this critical study of Time Magazine. As you say, every word, that includes the the advertising pages, religion pages, all of it. And um, looking for all of its references to values and religious subjects. I mean, like one thing I found, this was, of course, it was 1958 is the year that I chose to study this. Um, just the fact that guided missiles were being developed and they gave it names like the angel and things like this. You know, religious names, you know, being projected onto onto military hardware. And, uh, of course, Henry Luce, I had a investigate him and he was quite a character he was a genius he launched really the whole this whole movement of mass media such as newsweek and spiegel and all that he was the genius behind that a summary of the news every week but he was also riddled with calvinist presbyterian missionary um compulsions because his father had been a, a presbyterian minister in a missionary in in china and so, um, and his jingoism, he's very Republican and right-wing, uh, really shown through in his uh, documents. I was the only one outside of time ever allowed into his archives yeah. to read all his speeches and really get to know what he was about. And there are some very scary passages in there. For example, he says, America, more than any other nation since Israel, has been chosen by God to do blah, blah, blah. Uh, that kind of stuff, I realize uh, this is deep philosophical um, projection that's permeating every Time Magazine or Life Magazine or Sports Illustrated you pick up. So it was an awareness, a real awakening about the power of the media and the power of ideology to make its way into our media. So it really, it radicalized me. And especially realizing we had Time Magazine on our coffee table every week uh, growing up. And to realize I'd been taking that message in as a child, uh, not, what can I say, not not consciously realizing what was being done to me. So in many ways, I think the way television, you know, Fox News and the rest has unfolded since then uh, is just more affirmation that it's very important to think critically about the, the mass media where we get so much of our, our values, really. And so I think it was a, a very useful 
experience for me, and, and not just for me, I, uh, a number of cultural critics have appreciated the methodology that I developed. And, and the school itself is very excited about my thesis. The chairman of the department, who is a Jesuit, said, oh, finally, an American is doing something interesting. Because all <laughs> my fellow students from America were doing things. On, one guy was doing his thing on a 17th century French mystic, and other guys were doing things on 4th century prayer books and stuff. <laughs> and here I turned my thing on, on a 20th century time magazine. People, yeah. They thought I was crazy, my yeah. fellow students. Yes. What can I say? I think uh, it was a good... It was a good baptism for me into critical thinking about culture. And when you talk about that, when you talk about it, it, it it's a it's a matrix. It's it's a field that that is informing us unconsciously. Even the ads are like editorials. Absolutely, they contain value statements. Absolutely. And and in doing that, then there's um, you you mentioned something else that I think that kind of goes along with this. And it has to do with prayer. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned prayer as swimming. as mm-hmm. ra- There's a field of energy of prayer, not, mm-hmm. not the kind of vertical, I pray to God on high, but something else is going on there. Can you That's say something? That's true. When I was in Paris, I wrote an article on prayer as swimming. That was it, yeah. And I, and I want to emphasize the, the, the experience of, the pre- of presence and, as you say, matrix, and that prayer is more about relating to, to mystery than it is about saying prayers. I later developed a book, actually it was my first book, um, which was called originally on becoming a musical mystical bear, but in it I define prayer as a radical response to life. I stick by that definition to this day. I, I like it. In fact, I was working just a few weeks ago with a, a Lakota teacher, a young man actually, but who's Sundance for 19 years in a row, so he's very serious in his practice. And he taught me something. I knew that in native languages there's no word for art, there's no word for religion. But he said there was no word for prayer, to pray, until the missionaries came from Europe. They demanded that they make up a word for pray. So they said, we just sat around and made up a word, which really means to shout out. Mm. But he said, there's no word for prayer. And what does that mean? That's exactly what I meant by swimming in a matrix. You see that prayer is not something that you you do aside from the breathing you do every day and the decisions you make every day and the choices you make. That's prayer. And uh, so it's, it's utterly non-dualistic in the native tradition. That's why they don't have a word for it. It's like breathing. This fits very much with my idea that prayer is swimming and prayer is a radical response to life. Let's go a little further into your story. I'm going to jump ahead a bit. And I know that you gave the first <coughs> inkling of real the taking Vatican. on the Vatican. It's is like standing in front of a train. Right. So mm-hmm. the first inkling that that train is coming down the track <laughs> was, uh, I believe, when you gave a talk. Now you are fully a priest. You're 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 out there in in the world, and you're a Dominican, and and you're doing doing your thing, and things are going along. There are a couple of things that you've done, but one thing is that you gave a talk in coordination with a group called Dignity in Seattle, and this was a group of gay and lesbians, I believe, and you you gave a talk with them, and that started a little bit of the 
notice of the Vatican. Can, can you tell us about that? Yes, the bishop in Seattle at the time was Archbishop Hunthausen, who was a very progressive and courageous man because Seattle, of course, is a military base, a Navy base, and this was during the Vietnam War, and he stood up. He refused to pay his income taxes because of that war. And this got him, obviously, in considerable heat and trouble in the Seattle area, but he was a, an amazing man. And he welcomed Dignity, which is a Catholic gay and lesbian group. And um, they had a big conference there, and I was invited to give a talk. I gave a talk, and it was right after that that uh, the right wing was there, a group called Cuff. And they had already created a document about me in a sticker, so someone mailed it to the Vatican. That what was, was their objection? Of, well, that, that I wasn't condemning homosexuals. But then by then, they probably had other objections to my work, too, um, that I was working with women <laughs> and feminism. Uh, by then, I was working in a women's college, Vera College, back in Illinois, and um, I had Rosemary Ruther on my faculty. I, had, I invited Mary Daly in to speak. Um, I invited the first ordained Anglican priest, Episcopal priest, woman priest, to say a mass at our school. That got me in trouble with Cardinal Cody of Chicago, who was quite, uh, what should I say, notorious in his own right. But um, uh, so I was doing things that were stirring the pot a little bit. But uh, it was, what was interesting to me was that this crazy right-wing crackpot group called Cuff sent these documents to Rome, and Rome immediately responded. Whereas, you know, they weren't responding to the theology I was proposing or anything like that. So it taught me very early that, you know, there's something fishy going on here, that uh, people with absolutely no theological training, like these uh, these people with cough who are just angry, uh, they were listened to. But the fact is, for example, I mean, my books then were selling very broadly. And even the American bishops at that time hired me to uh, do a national study on education and spirituality. So they and bishops would come to my talks and even workshops. I remember a bishop in West Virginia, I had him doing crayons mm -hmm. with the other people, mm -hmm. making images and stuff. And uh so it's not as if the, uh, the bishops hated me from the start. Now, back then, too, there were some very fine bishops, such as Hunthausen. But gradually, when Pope John Paul II took over, of course, they made only yes-men bishops and everything shifted. But um, at that time, uh, in the late 70s, I think it was, early 80s, there were some real justice-oriented mm -hmm. Uh, bishops coming out of the Second Vatican Council, and it was it was more Catholicism at that time was more progressive. Oh, or, absolutely, yeah. and alive, oh, yeah, very well, alive. Those of us who yeah. were there at the time remember that yes. it was a breath of fresh air. Exactly, yeah. and and I just want to make the point too, Matthew, that when you were writing about any of this and all of those writings, you're very diligent to go back to the older people in the Catholic movement. I mean, you go back to Hildegard of Bingen, who is now 
listed as a saint uh-huh. in, and doctor and, of the and, church. and doctor of the church. Yeah. And then there's uh, Thomas Aquinas. You know, you go back. It's not like you're making up this stuff. You're using mm-hmm. Catholic theology, mm-hmm. but you're you're kind of bringing it out of the shadow, out of the modern, out of the modern era to the postmodern era. Well, exactly. And um, before we go into that, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but before we go into that, we're going to pause just a moment, and I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Father Matthew Fox, Hmm. and he's the author of many books, including Confessions, The Making of a Post-Denominational Priest. I'm Justine Willis-Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Father Matthew Fox, and he's the author of Confessions, The Making of a Post-Denominational Priest. And we're talking about uh, the rigor with which you go, you deal with theology. And at that time here, the Vatican was kind of starting to shake a bit, and the train was coming down the track as you describe it. So talk a bit more about that, that rigor of theology. Well, I've published three books on Hildegard of Bingen, who lived in the 12th century and was a great Renaissance figure and a, an amazing woman. Three books on Meister Eckhart, who's the greatest mystic probably the West has ever produced, and who Dr. Suzuki, the Japanese Buddhist, convinced Thomas Merton was the door to Eastern mysticism. And uh, even though he was a Dominican like I was, and he was condemned by the Pope as I was mm-hmm. uh, a week after he died, And even Thomas Aquinas. In my big book on Aquinas, I translated works that had never been translated into English, German, or even Italian before. And I have a much bigger picture of his his mystical cosmology. And uh, I think it's a whole new person that I've been able to unveil. So I stress this because... Part of the right-wing attack on my work is that I'm, quote, new age, unquote. Well, um, I don't think... These people who died 600, 700, 800 years ago are New Age. And a major book of mine is The Coming of the Cosmic Christ. And uh, I prove that the Cosmic Christ concept is in the earliest book in the Christian Bible. That is to say, Paul's letters. Well, what's New Age about that? What, what they're really saying is our culture is so mystically illiterate. And religion has helped to make it mystically illiterate, unfortunately, that when someone comes along with mystical uh, uh, insight, uh, they they label it New Age because they think New Agers are the only ones interested in mysticism. Now, at the same time, you know, I criticize New Age because it often leaves out the prophetic side, the social justice side. But I also give it some credit that it does care about a mystical uh, dimension to life and to science, a relationship to science, and to our bodies, the whole 
massage movement out of Esalen is not a small thing to get Westerners back in touch with their bodies because bad religion has made us so dualistic and so anti-matter that we should be thanking that part of the New Age movement for recovering our, our sense of, of, of the incarnation, our own incarnations, uh, of the holiness of the flesh. You know, it, also with, with all of that, I, I think that, that you mention in your book that in looking at Hildegard of Bingen, they look at the one part of her, the church right now is looking at the one part of her, but you pull out a lot of very uh, revolutionary ideas. And I just want to mention one quote that, that you include of her writing. And she said, uh, it was her warning to the papacy of her day. She said, oh man, you who sit on the papal throne, you despise God. And when you don't hurt from yourself the evil, but even worse, embrace it and kiss it by silently tolerating corrupt men. The whole of earth is in confusion. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and you, O Rome, are like one in the throes of death, for you don't love the king's daughter justice. That was pretty strong stuff. It's very strong stuff. Yeah, Hildegard was, was a force to reckon with. She was a warrior. And it's interesting, though, she lived in the 12th century. The first follower of Luther in the 16th century in Nuremberg said Hildegard was the first Lutheran, the first Protestant, <laughs> even though she was a Benedictine abbess. Yes. But you can see why. She was protesting in the 12th yes. century, and fiercely yes. so. And uh, she was listened to. That you know, the, their hierarchy were, were afraid of her because her visions uh, were so strong. They felt, you know, this might be the real thing. But in my recent book on Hildegard, which I wrote when she was being canonized and named Doctor of the Church, the last chapter is called "Is Hildegard a Trojan Horse in the Vatican?" Because by naming her a doctor, there are only three other women who've been named doctors of the church. But what a doctor of the church means is you have a lot to learn from this person. He's a, he or she is an important teacher. So she's a Trojan horse because the main thrust of her work is to bring the divine feminine into the church uh, and society. And so the Vatican, by and this is under Cardinal Ratzinger as Pope, Pope. Benedict XVI, by canonizing her name and the church, they're bringing this Trojan horse right into the <laughs> Vatican. They have approved of her work and tell everyone to read it and study it, and she's talking about the divine feminine, and I assure you, Ratzinger <laughs> isn't. <laughs> so it's and, I love irony. Uh, I love it is, irony. It's irony, and here it is. I'm divinely inspired in some <laughs> ways. Divinely inspired yeah, irony, Exactly, yeah. exactly. So you were first silenced by the church, you took a year off uh, in silence, and but you made use of your time at that time. They, they, the church said, "Okay, just shut up and <laughs> behave yourself." And you really struggled to stay in the order, Matthew. I did. I fought to stay in the order, and that year I was silent. I went to South America to meet with Leonardo Boff, the liberation theologian Franciscan in Brazil, who had also been silenced. And I met with Bishop Casadalaga, whose diocese was the Amazon rainforest, and uh, he had been silenced. It's very unusual to silence a bishop, but even he had been silenced. I spent time in Nicaragua with the Sandinista leaders. I was there for the 10th anniversary of the revolution and so forth. So I learned a lot from drinking in the real story of the um, 
liberation theology and based community movements in South America. But it's true that um, after that year of silence, um, they came after me a few years later and uh, and were trying to expel me. But I, I fought hard. We got, um, I think, five to 10,000 letters were sent to Rome in my behalf. Um, eventually, the Dutch Dominicans offered me what they call religious asylum. They said I could join their province and still work in California. So I thought, oh, wow, perfect solution. So I went to my provincial in Chicago and said, we have a win-win-win here. You guys get to get rid of me so you don't have to keep fighting Rome on my behalf, which obviously they were tired of doing. And yet I can stay in the order because I'll be a Dutch Dominican. And uh, and they've been protecting theologians for 800 years. They know how to do it. The Americans have not been protecting theologians. And, um, and then I continue my work. But my provincial, who was 10 years younger than I, at least, banged his fist on the table and said, I don't want you in any province in the order. And that's part of the rules, that if you're going to switch provinces, your previous province has to approve of, the, of your switch. So that was the end of that strategy. But I will always be grateful to the Dutch Dominicans because they went way out of their way. They had a formal process by which they formally invited me to join them. And, of course, uh, Father Skilebix, who I admire very much, was a Dutch Dominican theologian, older than I, and uh, he was part of that support effort. And I visited with him, um, and that was interesting when he told me. He said he had led, you know, I I wrote a letter to Ratzinger uh, called, a public letter called, Is the Catholic Church Today a Dysfunctional Family? And... um, he said he loved it so much he read it twice. He said only an American would be so blunt. <laughs> <laughs> to protest something like that, to really be articulate and say, look, uh, you know, like in the work of Ann Wilson, Schaaf, and others, they had yes. really laid out, here's what a dysfunctional family is like. And you took that mm-hmm. and you really applied it to what you could see was happening within the, oh. the head of the the Vatican, what was going on. Exactly. And I use the word fascism, too. Yes. And, of course, that has a lot of connotations since Ratzinger came out of Nazi Germany as a, as a youth. He was part of that whole reality. And um, so that rattled a few cages in Europe, too. But to me, and it's the truth. We're using his name Ratzinger, but but I want to remind our listeners that he then became Pope. He was Pope Benedict XVI. Right. He was head of the Congregation of the Faith, which is the former Inquisition office in the Vatican, under Pope John Paul II, who, by the way, gave him a carte blanche. So everything he did in that role, John Paul II was uh, uh, supporting and approving of. But then he became Pope, yeah, and I had my response to that Yes. Uh, when he became Pope. And- Matthew, what does it mean when you are, as as a Catholic priest— dismissed from the order with which you are affiliated. What does that mean, actually? Well, it means you're you're in limbo. You're kind of floating around because you have to, if you're going to work as a priest, then you need to find a bishop or another order that will take you. But I was radioactive because they, they do that to you. They make you radioactive. So I put in a feeler, underground feeler. I was in Oakland. And the bishop there had always been personable and friendly to me. So I sent a feeler out about would would he take me, and the answer was no. I was too radioactive. So fine, I just uh, 
said, well, fine, I don't have to be a, a pre, an active priest. But then I ran into these young Anglicans from Sheffield, England, who were taking rave into liturgy, and I was very moved by that. I just finished my book on reinvention of work, and the last chapter was on reinventing ritual. So to make a long story short, they told me I could help them by becoming an Episcopal priest. So I prayed about it, thought about it. I said, well, the Pope's fired me. He doesn't need me. He's told me he doesn't need me. So I went to the Episcopal Bishop of California, Bishop Swing, and said to him, this is, this is what I'm thinking. I want to become Episcopal priest, but only for one reason, to reinvent forms of worship using today's postmodern languages of DJ, VJ, rave, rap, and all this to, to revivify uh, ritual and ceremony and, and worship. And he gave me a green light, and he supported me very strongly. So that's why I've been a Episcopal priest for the last 18 years. And and Matthew, so within that order, and, and you progressed with these young people, especially, and which is the love of yours, is working with young people and revivifying the, the religious practices uh, and that— is when you began Cosmic Mass. <laughs> and so help us to know, what what is that? What is Cosmic Mass? <laughs> well, the Cosmic Mass is um, it's um, an experience, a, c- a celebration, where we dance primarily to DJs and with VJs telling the story through imaging, um, rather than sitting in, in pews daring the preacher to keep us awake. So um, it's much more participatory. And many generations come. It's not just for young people, although they're absolutely at the heart of it because only they know how to use the computers and the, <laughs> the, the, the equipment that DJing and VJing requires. But, for, I mean, one mass, we had an 84-year-old lady out there dancing away. She said to me, I've been waiting 82 years for someone to connect my love of prayer with love of dance, she said. She said, it took three buses to get me here tonight, so I'm going to need a ride home because by the time I'm finished <laughs> dancing, she said, the buses aren't going to be running. <laughs> Two years ago, we did it at Sounds True Conference in uh, the Rocky Mountains. There were 1,000 people of all traditions. There were Jews and Sufis and atheists and Christians and all of it. Afterwards, the next day, a man came up to me, and he's a, a, a CEO in a well-known Silicon Valley company, and he said to me, um, that was the most powerful religious experience of my life. And he pointed at his heart. And he said, I want to help you. So thanks to his uh, grant, we've been able to uh, run the Mass again the last two years here in the Bay Area. I'm here with Father Matthew Fox. He's the author of Confessions, The Making of a Post-Denominational Priest. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Father Matthew Fox. He's the author of Confessions, The Making of a Post-Denominational Priest. And uh, we were talking about Cosmic Mass, and I, I just have to mention, uh, because you say it several times in the book, and you really emphasize this, um, there should be no boring worship. You know, <laughs> I, I just love that. And and I remember you, you at one point, there was some— uh, priest in Wales, in Cardiff, who was asking, how can I revivify my my church? And you suggested, after being, you know, you're doing these cosmic masses, you suggested that he take the pews out so that people could kind could of dance. dance. Yeah. And he said, well, oh, you remember what he said? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, he said, we'd, we'd lose most of our congregation. I said, well, how many come on Sundays? He said, 35 people. So I said, well, fine, you may lose 25 people, but you may gain 300, you know. So uh, that and was he, kind of fun. He, he also said, but we can't take the pews out. They, they've been there for 150 years. And isn't that yeah. indicative of of what's going on with the church. It's, I'm talking about the, the mostly the Catholic Church, and maybe all churches, yeah, that even was a Protestant. Protestant. That was a that Protestant, was a Protestant. There we go. Yeah, and um, right. I mean, they're living in the past. Uh, churches, especially in Europe, are, are museum pieces. It's become a, a noun instead of a verb. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's boring. <laughs> it's boring. It's boring, and I think many of us can attest to that. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the new pope, Pope Francis, mm-hmm. because I know that you have uh, written a book, Letters to Pope Francis, and and I would love your your take on because there seems to be people excited about his ideas and what he's doing. So. Help us to understand a little bit about what's going on right now in in your view. Well, I think that um, at the level of, uh, call it the bully pulpit or the religious pulpit, I think he's doing a very fine job reaching a lot of people, many of them not believers and so forth or ex-believers, around the really important value issues of our time, such as environment, his new encyclical, and, of course, critiquing the economic system fiercely, uh, and, of course, coming from the third world, from Argentina, he's tasted its shallow and, side. And, and in what ways does he criticize it? Oh, well, he, he, you know, he calls it predatory. He says uh, the concept of trickle-down economics has been utterly disproven. Yeah, he talks, he uses language that's very strong mm-hmm. about capitalism in its present form. So I think he's a figure like the Dalai Lama in that regard because people are looking for some moral leadership at this time around really important issues such as economics and and the environment also. And he's been pretty hard on the what's called the Curia, the Association of Bishops there at the Vatican. Well, Is that right? Right. That's the bureaucracy that runs the Vatican, yes. He's been quite very fierce, actually. Last Christmas, he put out a real strong statement criticizing them, and he's trying to replace things. He's trying to um, clean up the Vatican Bank, which has been an issue for decades, and he's done it. He's made a lot of enemies doing so, including the mafia, because they've been cleaning their money there for, for years. But I'll tell you, I don't think he's going to succeed internally. I think there's just too much opposition. Uh, the synod that's going on at this time you're really realizing there is a, quote, civil war, unquote, in the Catholic Church. That phrase comes from an archbishop in India 
who used that phrase just before Pope Francis was elected. And the right wing is taking no prisoners in the church. It's absolutely fierce. So what's going on at this synagogue is discussing homosexuality and also um, divorced Catholics is, is interesting to watch. I wasn't the only one condemned. There are 105 other theologians who were silenced under these last two popes. And I list their names in my book, The Pope's War, at the end of that book. So there has been a dumb dumbing down of the church. That's why the pedophile crisis was so horribly dealt with, because you didn't have men in charge there who had a clue about conscience or about uh, uh, communication and so forth. And they hid these people and passed them around and so forth. So um, the, the church is so rotten on the inside. Uh, the structure we have at this time in history that I don't think Pope Francis is is going to live long enough to be able to reform it or even to replace enough of the current leaders. You have the Opus Dei, for example, this extreme right-wing fascist secret group that's really running things in the church. The Archbishop of San Francisco and Los Angeles, the two most important dioceses in the West Coast, are both Opus Dei, and they're young. Now, what exactly does that mean? Opus Dei? Yes. It's a, a fascist organization started by a fascist Spanish priest, uh, in the 20th now, when century. when you say fascist. Uh, fascist, this but, guy. But, I mean, how do you know? What, what, what's the indication? Because the, the priest was a fascist. Oh, he was in, a, in Spain. He actually was Absolutely. A, a, a documented of course. fascist. And okay. they rushed him into canonization faster than any saint in history, and he admired Hitler. I have all this documented in my book, The Post, where oh, okay. I have a whole chapter all on right. Opus Dei. Yeah. And they are very strong in the media, they go where the power is. They were strong in the CIA and the FBI and the Supreme Court. The five, remember, the five people who voted for Citizens United in the Supreme Court were all right-wing Catholics. Here in the U.S., in yes. The, well, yes. Yes. And uh, several of them were deeply involved with Opus Dei. Interesting. That just brings me, like, the canonization, the recent canonization of Father Junipero Serra, uh, and Horrible. that was Horrible. a disappointment to you. Yeah, more can than you a disappointment, can it's you a scandal. Explain? Yes, and and Pope Francis will never get over this. It will be a a black mark in his legacy forever and ever. It's a scandal because the missions that Father Serra started in California are to the native people of this land what the Confederate flag is to the blacks of of the South. It conjures up all the oppression and genocide that was reigned on the California Indians, coastal Indians. And now the documentation is out there. There's a marvelous book that came out this year um, by Castillo, Elias Castillo, uh, The Thorns of, um, of the Cross, I think it's called. And uh, it's the history of these missions. And he spent six years researching this, what really went on there. They were death camps. He tells a story of a, uh, a French sea captain who landed in Carmel. He was the first outsider to see Sarah's missions. And he had just come from the Caribbean, the slave plantations in the Caribbean. And he said, this is deja vu. These are just like the slave plantations because the, the people work all day for nothing. They're not allowed to learn to read or write. And you hear the whip all day long, just like you do on the plantations. So it was another form of slavery. And um, it's a scandal that this pope went through with that um, 
with that canonization. I worked closely with native leaders to to try to get the truth to the Vatican. And uh, unfortunately, uh, we weren't able to penetrate the forces that were supporting it, including Opus Dei. But I want to say, what you are doing, um, rather than trying to reform the church, so to speak, you're what we what some of us would say. You're throwing a better party. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, this is the way I put it. We don't have to travel with basilicas on our back anymore. Religion is not needed. What's needed is what I call backpacks. Spirituality is a much lighter thing. It's more internal. We have to do our our practice. We have to calm the reptilian brain within ourselves, but we don't need all the paraphernalia of 2,000 years of, of building churches and backing empires. Frankly, though, I think all the religions of the world have to go through this winnowing process. And in many ways, I give Christianity credit for doing critical scholarship. Now we know what are the words of Jesus in the Gospels versus the words that were put into his mouth by the early Christians, which words are often very full of wisdom, but it's not. it doesn't give you the real picture of who Jesus was. And uh, I think Islam has to go through this. Buddhism has to go through this. There's a shadow side in all religions. And we've all failed. Otherwise, the earth would not be dying. And the young, I think, are intuiting. I think Gaia herself is awakening the young people. That they're being called beyond religion, but to a, a, a profound spiritual practice and commitment to putting compassion and justice to work in our professions and in our world in order to try to save Mother Earth and and our species. I mean, we're living in very critical times, and uh, there's very little time left for our species to change its ways. And that's why we can't tolerate. There's a luxury to even think of keeping something like the Vatican going and all this stuff. We don't need it. Uh, we spirituality is something deep, but you travel light. And we need, of course, the wisdom of all the spiritual traditions at this time. And especially we who are American, we should be calling on the wisdom of the indigenous people here. Because the shamanistic tradition is the oldest spiritual tradition by far. It's been around 40,000 years. I mean, Buddha and the, and the Bible have only been around three or 35 Hundred years. So um, there's so much to learn from the indigenous wisdom. And part of it is that it's very ecumenical. They don't go around claiming we're the only religion. In fact, they don't even use the word religion. They use the word life. And in fact, I remember the quote, in which I'll go out with, uh, from our dear friend Bill McDonough of the uh, anticipatory uh, design architect. And he says um, that... Um, Nature is all about celebration, and those uh, it's survival, not survival of the fittest, but it's those who celebrate the most <laughs> will be the evolutionary winners. So, <laughs> That's great. So thank uh, you. you for, say amen to that. <laughs> amen. All right. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Justine. I've been speaking with Father Matthew Fox. He's the author of the revised and updated edition of Confessions, the Making of a Post-Denominational Priest. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, matthewfox.org, O-R-G, matthewfox.org. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions.
This is program number 3560. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.